0: Last week I started uh, a two-part series that we'll finish up today. It's the last nine days of Jesus' life. I started last week on Palm Sunday, not to be confused, as I said last week, with Palm Monday. And we started a chronological account and a harmony of the Gospels of the last days of Jesus' life on earth. The sermon last week concluded with preparations for the Passover meal and Passover meal with his disciples and our communion passage was the account of that meal that we know as the Last Supper where Jesus instituted the communion of the saints of the church which marks the beginning of the sixth day. With sundown and the uh, Passover meal, we are now into the sixth day of Jesus' last Uh, Nine days. We ended this study with words found identically in both Matthew and Mark. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And that is where we will pick up today. Now, Matthew and Mark are virtually identical on what happens next in our timeline. The Matthew account, chapter 26, verses 30 through 35, Says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. And you know, I always leave that out when I'm thinking of it, because oh, Peter is my favorite. Because he's, he's the first one to always say, I will do this or I will do that. And yet, you know, though he was the first, and I always miss, and all the disciples said the same thing. They were all going to stand beside Jesus. Matthew and Mark don't recount what Jesus replied to Peter, but the Gospel of Luke does. In chapter 22, 31 through 39, Jesus must have shook his head sadly at Peter. And I I can visualize this very well in my mind and it says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me Peter does not reply but Jesus words must have set his mind working what Jesus says next to his band of followers certainly would in verses 35 through 38 and he said to them when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals did you lack anything they said nothing he said to them but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And the disciples, and we'll get into this in just a little bit. And the, the disciples said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it, it is enough. And, you know, that's always puzzled me what this is. And if the teaching that I've gotten out of some of the commentators is wrong, um, well, actually we'll blame the ESV study Bible because this is from the uh, Sproul study Bible. Jesus basically says apropos of nothing whatsoever, you guys have a sword, you know? No, sell your coat and buy one. Jesus was letting his disciples know that their future, especially their immediate future, was going to be fraught with danger. When they reply that they do have two swords, taking Jesus literally, he stops them with enough of that talk. It is enough. Going on, John records more. John 14, 1-6 says, Jesus talking, Let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I had go to, to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. His works. Now Jesus knows, He's, we think at this point that they've gone, sung their hymn and they've gone out. They've left the Last Supper. They are walking, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he is still teaching. His time is short, measured in just a couple of hours, where he spoke in parables before. He is now speaking to them face to face in plain language. It's astonishing how much he crams into these final few moments. As I said last week, these teachers are things that we break up. And we'll take one whole section. Let you not... uh, in my Father's house are many rooms. How many times have you heard that preach? But have you preached, heard it preached as they're leaving for the Garden of Gethsemane? Or do we preach this as, a, as an abstract to teach, uh, to teach another truth? But in its context, they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. John 14, 15-18, continuing on, says, if you love me... You will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of Truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. This is not verbatim. I'm giving you the Reader's Digest condensed version. There are A lot that I'm leaving out here. But these are the major points that he's saying on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Continuing on in John 15, 1 through 5, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that he may bear more fruit. He's telling the disciples what they need to be doing. That they will be about their father's work. That they will be producing fruit. That they are now going to be taking up where Jesus left off. And continuing on. He says, Abide in me and I in you. And the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Going on, he says, later on in this verse. This is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. That someone lays down his life for his friends. Remember, he's walking to his death at this point. He's going to the garden. Greater love has no this. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Going on, he says, if the world hates you, and now he's explaining the whole thing about the taking the sword, The trouble's coming. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. And think about it in the context of today. We belong to the Lord. The world hates Jesus. The world hates Christians today, and Jesus knew this in His time, and He knew what it would apply to us also. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, if you were of the world, if you were these people, the world loves you. The world loves you, but because you are not of the world, be, but. But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And chapter 16 ends with, in John, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. His disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you come from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, but that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And then all of chapter 17, which ends this section, is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He then prays for them on his way to the garden. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world ended. It continues on for the entire chapter. Now the shifts, uh, scene shifts. John 18 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples to cross the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Matthew twenty six thirty six picks up this story. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Luke 22 adds at this point, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood, falling down to the ground. Matthew, verse 40 says, And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour? And, you know, I grew up on the Easter story. And when I was young, I would think, Yeah, you couldn't stay awake one hour? Really? But that was before I myself have gone through times of extreme stress, such as the disciples are going through. Pastors will talk about how exhausted they are on Sunday evenings because they are being attacked by Satan and trying to be kept from the message, and, and it wears them out. And sometimes I feel that way. The stress that the disciples were facing at this moment, knowing what was going to happen, I think was overpowering. It wasn't sleep. It wasn't inattention. It wasn't, it wasn't bedtime it was that they could not keep their eyes open because of the exhaustion that they felt mentally. Add to that the ongoing satanic attack that they were all undergoing. Their ability to keep watch is not just understandable, but really inevitable. Matthew 26, 41 through 45 says, Watch and pray so that you may not enter temptation. This is Jesus still speaking to Peter and the sons of Zebedee. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again for the second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hours at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so the authorities arrive. Matthew, Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Other versions say that then Jesus put his hand on the servant's head and healed it. Luke gives the servant's name as Malchus in this. And why does he give the name as Malchus? Well, undoubtedly, he gave it so that if someone questioned the miracle, they could go to Malchus and ask. Malchus was probably still alive. And he gave the name so that the witness, the recipient of the miracle, could verify it. Mark adds the guilty comment in Mark 14, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And we we suspect that he'd been in bed. This is late at night. He'd been in bed. He threw on a linen cloth, went to see what the commotion was, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This would be, of course, Mark, the um, writer of the Gospel, and also the son of the lady who had the house where the uh, Last Supper took place. So he knew what was going on, and he followed. Luke 22, continuing on, says, Then they seized him, Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then the servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You are also one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval, interval of about an hour, still another one insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. You'll remember that the Galileans could not speak the language very well. They were they had a bad accent. They had a southern accent, even though they were from the north. And you could tell immediately a Galilean because they did not speak Hebrew probably at all, but they did not speak well. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And you know, as you're looking at that scene, the rooster crows, and and Peter reports that the Lord turned and looked at him. You know, it wasn't a reproach. It was really, Peter, I told you what was going to happen i told you that this was coming down to prepare you now the men who were holding jesus in custody and this is in at caiaphas's house were mocking him as they beat him they also blindfolded him and kept him asking him prophesy who is it that struck you and you wonder if, if peter who was prophesied to by Jesus about what he would do that evening didn't just see what was going on and consider it, what the next line said, and they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Peter would have seen that as blasphemy. Mark 14, starting in verse 53b, continues, And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the middle and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. What happens next in the trial of Jesus? This this is the same in Matthew and Mark. The Gospel of John adds some other details, but it is Luke who shows what happens in the daylight most clearly because all of this has taken place at night. Peter was around the fire, keeping warm in the cool of, the chill of the morning i won't say the cool of the morning luke 22 concludes when the day came the assembly of the elders of the people the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes and they led him away to their council and they said if you are the christ tell us but he said to them if i tell you you will not believe And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. In the eyes of the elders, chief priests and scribes, Jesus stands condemned, but the leaders of the Jews, finding Jesus guilty, does nothing to accomplish their demonic plan. Luke 23, 1-5 says, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, and I want you to make sure you know that, the chief priests and the crowds. He said, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, and teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. And I want you to pay attention to that because who exactly wants to put Jesus to death here? Because Pontius Pilate a lifelong pagan, a lifelong Roman, he is not a Christian. He is not even a Christian sympathizer. He's not a Jewish sympathizer. He hates them all basically. But Pontius Pilate finds Jesus, you know, in our, in our law, when, when a verdict is given, we say not guilty, okay? Because guilt has not been proven. We don't say innocent. Pontius Pilate here says that Jesus was innocent, there was no guilt found in Jesus. Then the leaders of the Jewish nation plead with Pilate, claiming that Jesus has caused an uproar through all Judea, from Jerusalem to Galilee. And Pontius Pilate, the next verse says, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction... He sent him over to Herod, who was in Jerusalem at that time. Herod had come. It's one of the travel feasts of of uh, the Hebrews. Anyone in Judea was supposed to come. Herod's in town. And so Pilate hears that Herod's here, and he says, Galilean, that's where Herod is in charge of. And he sends... And he sends Jesus over to Herod. Now this Herod, as we've gone through the scorecards of Herod, this is Herod Antipas, not Herod Agrippa that we just finished with in Acts. Well, we didn't finish with him, but God finished with him. But this is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas only played at being a Jew. Herod Agrippa really tried to ingratiate himself to the Jews, but Herod Antipas... He grew up in the household of uh, the Caesars. He, Though it was the only place he would be able to rule, he didn't like Jews. He was only nominally Jewish. Once again, pay attention to Herod Antipas's reaction to Jesus, remembering that he was about as pagan as Pontius Pilate was. Verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus... He was very glad. Okay, that's weird. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Herod was very glad to finally meet Jesus hoping to see a miracle because he knew about Jesus' ministry throughout Galilee. But Herod was about to be disappointed. So he questioned him at some length, but he, Jesus, made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Okay? Herod didn't find anything wrong with Jesus. He sent him back to Pilate. And the next line of this verse, And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that day, for before this they had been in enmity with each other. Herod so much enjoyed the fact that that Pilate sent Jesus over, who he'd always want to meet, that from then on these two enemies were friends. This does not sound like this is going the way of the chief scribes and the Pharisees at this point. This is really not what they... Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate. Verse 14 through 16 says, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. So it's not just the priests and the rulers. And the elders, it's the people also, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will thereby punish him, therefore punish him and release him. Both the pagan Pontius Pilate and the non-Jewish Jewish King Herod Antipas have found Jesus innocent, and Pilate decides to release Jesus. So, who is it that wants Jesus dead? Well, the Romans don't want him dead. The King of the Jews don't want him dead, but they all cried out together. Remember that this is a chief priest and the rulers and the people. demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed, so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. And before you think of Pilate as being evil for this, you must remember what was the point of the Roman Empire. They wanted to keep peace at any cost. The Pax Romana ruled for a, hundred, a couple hundred years. The most important thing to the Caesars and to the leaders was to keep the peace. And being pagans, a life meant nothing to them. If a man had to die for the peace of the Republic, oh, So be it. We just saw Caiaphas, the high priest, last week say, better for a man to die for the nation of Israel, which is completely outside the realm of justice, than for for us to lose our place and our nation. Well, the Romans didn't have that compunction. Killing somebody to keep the peace was nothing to them. I'd say they were happy to do it, but Pilate here does Displays the fact that he was not happy to do it. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. The rulers and the priests and the people, and remember that some of these people were probably in the crowds who were welcoming Jesus into the city just a couple of days before, call for Jesus to be crucified and for a murderer. An insurrectionist to be released to them. So, my big question is this is the big wrap up where I ask you a question, and we can all think about it. Why was it that the Jews, who prided themselves on being God's chosen people, why was it that they were the ones who wanted to crucify Jesus? God incarnate and not the pagans in the story it was the Jews the pagans were happy with the way things were but the Jews wanted Jesus dead pagans by definition are not the people of the one true God and yet the Jews thought they were so, so what gives and here's The more I live in our country these days, the more I believe in Satan, okay? And demons and demonic possession. Satan is not God, okay? Satan does not possess God's attributes. Satan is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. He's an omniscient. He doesn't know everything at once. He can't be controlling everybody in the world At the same time, so why would Satan be concentrating on the actions of the pagans in this story? In this event? I mean, why was Satan not concentrating on the actions of the pagans? Because they were already his. He didn't have to expend any effort. The pagans already believed in their false gods. I've just explained that the Romans didn't care about human life. Killing Jesus even if they thought it was unjust if it kept the peace, was a fine thing to them. The pagans will not interfere with the evil one's plans. We just read that they didn't. You want to release them, but they say no? Okay, fine, here, you got him. Do what you want. It's the Jews that Satan needed. And he's been working them on them for 1,500 years at that point. Okay, he hasn't let them alone. Not when they were in Egypt, not when they came out of Egypt. It's the Jews that for 1,500 years he'd been causing to sin. Worshipping a golden calf before they'd even entered the land. They were supposed to utterly destroy the inhabitants of Canaan and tear down the high places where the child sacrifices were taken. Instead, Satan had them intermarrying with the Canaanites because they were not destroyed. And within a hundred years of the establishment of the temple, the high priest had built a high place in the temple and was sacrificing children. Now, along in history comes God himself. Jesus, very God, A very God. And Satan thinks, if only I can get rid of him. And I have to tell you, I do not know why Satan thinks he can do this. I really don't. I've read to the end of the book, you know, uh, maybe Satan hasn't read to the end of the book. But if I can only get rid of him. So he has his plan. But to use the Romans... The pagans, people opposed to God, will not work. God-fearing Jews could revolt. And there were God-fearing Jews. No, he needed God's chosen people to do his work. So crucify him, they dutifully scream. Well, Jesus was crucified. And we know actually from history what happened. The world went dark. The temple curtain was ripped in half. Earthquakes shook the land. And then, as all four Gospels record, now after the Sabbath toward the dawn of the first day of the week, this is in Matthew. I'm just going to go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Mark. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb... And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be afraid. alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Luke, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus.' and on the third day rise and finally in John now on the first day of the week Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early and while it was still dark and saw that the tomb had been taken away from the and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple the one whom Jesus loved and said to them they have taken the Lord out of the tomb And we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And That's our celebration today. Our celebration is that though they tried to kill Jesus, though he was sentenced, and I've used this before, to death, his sentence was reversed on appeal by God himself. It is what we celebrate. It's why we're here. And if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't be here because if it wasn't for that, Jesus would have faded away into history and never be remembered. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we truly are here only because of this day, Resurrection Sunday, when you were raised from the dead by your own hand and now intercede for us with the Father sitting at his right hand. Lord, we praise you. We thank you for the sacrifice you made. We pray that we will be strong and worthy of your sacrifice as we face darkening times ourselves. As you said in Gethsemane, I pray that that cup will pass us also. But whatever happens... Let your will be done. Guide and direct us, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.